This episode is powered by denmeditation.com with locations in Los Angeles that normalize meditation and make it available to all. Though meditation is the primary focus, the bigger goal is for people to understand and love themselves, thus creating more harmony in the community at large. To find out more about Den Meditation's teacher training programs, retreats, and all things Den Meditation, go to denmeditation.com. Welcome to Den Talks. I'm Tal Rabinowitz, the founder of Den Meditation, and I am so excited for this episode. I have Rabbi Wolpe on today. I know, I know. You're probably like, why is there a rabbi on this podcast? But when we first had the idea to do this podcast, I was always trying to figure out what guest should be on, and his name was always one of the first on here. I really, really, really want to have a discussion about religion versus spirituality. Are they so different? Why does religion get such a bad name? And he is the perfect person to have this conversation with. Not only is he unbelievably powerful in his field, he's been named the most influential rabbi in America by Newsweek. He's one of the 50 most influential Jews in the world by the Jerusalem Post. He's spoken to many world leaders, including the Dalai Lama. He's been published and profiled in the New York Times, LA Times, Washington Post, Huffington Post, and has made many prominent TV appearances. He's also the author of eight books, and his latest book has been optioned for a movie by Warner Brothers. The list of accolades goes on and on and is super long, but above all, he's wise, he's kind, and he's a caring friend. The amount of deep and worldly conversations he and I have had has changed my perspective on so many things, but he's never tried to influence me or push me. He's always just a friend with an incredible intellect and an open heart. I can't wait for you guys to hear how he speaks about the world. It will remind you of the common thread that we all have within our own individual beliefs. You guys are going to love him, I promise. And if you're as obsessed with everything he says as I am, he does put his sermons on a podcast called Off the Pulpit. This is not about religion, guys. I promise you, it's really just about us. I'm so excited for you all to be privy to this conversation because I'm sitting with Rabbi Wolpe, who was named the most influential rabbi in America by Newsweek and one of the 50 most influential Jews in the world by the Jerusalem Post. He's one of the smartest men I know, and his outlook on all things is pretty incredible. And he's one of my favorite people to talk to. So this is a thrill for me because you and I actually haven't seen each other in a while. That's true. And I'm so happy to have you here. I am so happy to be here. So talk to me a little bit. You are one of the most famous rabbis. You get asked around the world. You have the most incredible conversations. This is what you do. It is who you are. But you also come from this lineage, correct? Like your dad was a very well-known rabbi. My father was a well-known rabbi. His father actually was a vaudevillian. I love I, that. I don't know how far that is from being a rabbi, but... It's pretty he, close, actually. Yes, I'm just exactly. <laughs> um, so I think... My, and my father became a rabbi really because his father died when he was young. And someone at the synagogue went out of their way to sort of take him in and make him feel not alone in the world. So, so it's like my compassion, actually. Yes, it was absolutely compassion. And then how was it being raised in a household with a rabbi? I, I think in some ways I can't give a generic answer to that because it depends on what the person is like. My father was a very open and loving person not at all judgmental, not at all thunderous. I remember he used to say to us on Saturday mornings, if you feel like coming, you'll come. If you don't feel like coming, you won't. And we would all scurry downstairs and watch cartoons. So, But that's incredible because yes. what I was leading to is, do you feel like you had a choice or did you kind of enter this because it was... I completely had a choice. In fact, I didn't know how my father would feel when I decided to go into the rabbinate because he'd never mentioned it. And when I called him, I was in California at the time and told him I was going to go to rabbinical school, he cried. 
which was one of the most beautiful moments of my life. And because you never knew he actually cared in that regard. <laughs> I had no idea. With, I didn't know if he'd be pleased or not pleased. I really didn't. And that it touched him so deeply and affirmed the way he'd spent his life. It was just a beautiful thing. Now, for you, was there a moment you didn't believe ever? Or were you always like, son of a rabbi, this is who you were and this is where you went? There were a lot of moments I didn't believe. Um, in high school and beyond, I was a, I used to love to argue atheism, which is one of the reasons why, why I did these debates with people who were atheists, because it wasn't unfamiliar to me. Um, and so I debated Hitchens and Harris and all these guys who are professional atheists because I had a lot of sympathy with their arguments. So how do you feel like, when did that argument change for you? And why did you all of a sudden, if you're raised in a religious household, why were you all of a sudden turning towards atheism? Because of all the reasons that other people do, I think, because of science and technology and modernity and, and the idea that terrible things happen and how could there be a God if such things happen. And for me, the turning point was less an argument than it was as I got to know faithful people I saw that they were as thoughtful, as strong, as maybe more so than people who didn't have faith. And it broke apart that stereotype that people who have faith are all rigid, judgmental, those kinds of people. So you had that stereotype I too. did, even though I thought my father is the exception, but all those other people, and I was wrong. It's not true. And it sounds like you had a little bit of anger towards God as well. I had anger, I think, towards all of established religion, in part because as, as kind as my parents were, the truth was I was thrown into it as a rabbi's kid. They couldn't protect me from other people's assumptions. I remember when I was like five or six years old, I would go to other people's houses and they would say, what's your name? David Wolpe. Are you Rabbi Wolpe, son? Yes. And they would say, well, you know, I used to keep kosher. And I would say, like, lady, I'm I don't six care. years old. <laughs> Take it up with my father. I don't care. But because the community sees you that way, um, it's hard to escape. And I think I had anger about that. So I, I kind of think this is what makes you such a special human, which is why you and I connect so well, because I think what people need to know is, I mean, I, you and I actually got really close when I was probably furthest. I'm not a terribly right. religious person. You know that. It's yeah. like, I love my identity. I love my Judaism, but I'm not very religious. Um, and that was never an issue for you. It was no. actually never... I think it's what allowed us to have a really beautiful friendship because yes. it was never about you trying to be my rabbi or me trying to impress you as someone in your congregation. I was never in your congregation and we just established our own relationship. But I think it's what makes you, it's so interesting that you kind of got that from your dad and it's where you keep going as a rabbi because I think people do still have that fear of, and it's one of the reasons I really wanted to have you on here is that religion doesn't always have to have such a negative Stereotype. We talked to Hawk Newsom earlier, um, probably a month or so ago, who launched Black Lives Matter in New York, and he's actually very religious. And he was saying how angry he gets because he feels like he gets just prejudged that everyone just right. assumes he's judgmental and difficult. He's like, and it's so frustrating for me. I have to defend myself before someone accepts me versus someone just accepting me. And well, do you feel that sometimes that too? That certainly happens sometimes when you tell people you're a rabbi. You know, it's a very fraught thing for them to see you then as a person. Um, but, but it also gives you what you just said. It also gives you, in a weird way, the power to not be what they expect. And that opens people up. I just, just the other day, I was in an Uber and the guy was driving me back and he asked me what I did. I said that I was a rabbi. And when I told him that my synagogue has female rabbis and that we do same-sex marriages, he was, he's not Jewish. 
he was blown away. He had no idea that such a thing was possible. And it allows you to change people's views as well as, you know, un- unfortunately, sometimes, you know, reinforce them. But so that's right. You and I actually, I got to know you kind of when you started bringing same-sex marriage right. to your congregation. Yes. And it wasn't easy. No. They, and you weren't exactly accepted <laughs> no, with it. No, it was not. It was not always easy. But but I knew, I knew that it was, I, first of all, I, I knew that it was right. I felt deeply that it was right. And also I knew that that was eventually going to be the view of everybody there sooner or later, but it would take a long time. It's still, there are still people who don't like the idea. But that's so beautiful that you decided to take the lead versus you could have waited. You could have been like, ah, right. eh, we'll get there eventually. Why I push know. them? Why make them uncomfortable? But you made them uncomfortable. Right. Because you knew that evolu- like for their spiritual evolution or their what you believe true religion I is, really that's felt the that. And also I felt, I felt increasingly uncomfortable with the distance between what I was practicing and what I believed. And at a certain point, the dissonance gets too great. And you don't want to stand up and represent something that you don't really believe is true. And so you just have to. And then I remember my daughter who was, I don't know, 11 or 12 at the time. I said to her, um, you know, Samara, I just want you to know, I'm going to send out a letter to the congregation that I'm going to start doing. And you're going to hear about it at school and so on. And people may say bad things. She said, about what? And I said that I'm going to start to do same-sex marriages. And she looked at me puzzled and she said, what took you so long? <laughs> and I knew, it's like, well, there you go. I'm doing there, the right there thing. There was the answer. Exactly. Yeah, but your daughter is like exactly. a little angel. She is. I she, mean, she's, she's so a special. wonderful human being. So in this rigidity that you're talking about that some people not only expect, some people enjoy and mm-hmm. like. It's part yes. of the reason they right. you know, follow a religion because they like the rigidity. So if you're someone who actually believes this is not what religion has, how do you shift like what dogma is and what the spirituality is within a religion? It's hard because you have to have a certain kind of structure or ritual or whatever, or there's no tradition left. Um, I think that I think that's exactly what you do, which is you have to go deeper. If you just practice something and you don't see any deeper point or purpose or meaning to it, so then yeah, it's empty. But if you go deeper, then I'm sure there are people who do yoga because they have bad backs. Absolutely. But then there are people who do yoga because it connects them in a deep way to something that they can't name, but they feel is real. And same here. I say all the time here too, people sometimes walk in um, and they're like, oh, I'm going to start meditating. My life's going to get better. And it's like, but you have to go deeper. It's not, it is, yes, meditation will help you get there, but you have to be willing to like, look inwards and what do you believe? Who are you? What do you think? And then start living by that. The weird thing about an instrumental use of religion or meditation or so on is that you can't do it instrumentally in order to get that use. You have to do it for its own sake and then it has the benefits. If you're doing it only for the benefits, it's just like when people say, you know, I'm going to start being, um, I'm going to start doing ritual and then uh, I'll be proud. I'll be successful in business, or I won't get sick. And I always say that that's not the way it works. I, if you do it for its own sake, your life will get better, but not if you do it so that your life will get better. It's a paradox. Well, I there's a quote you have from Why Faith Matters that I want to read because I feel like it fits in here, and I love it, which is: "Religion begins in wonder, flourishes in relationship, and is realized through living in awareness of holiness." And part of the reason I pulled it was because to me, I'm like, well take out the word religion, that's exactly what Mm -hmm. we practice and what we do because it's the same exact thing. It's like you have to have 
faith and whether it's God or yourself or the universe or whatever your thing is, and you have to believe in it and practice it. Yes. And I really do. I agree very much that some kind of practice is critical to all this because that's where the commitment lies. When people say they're spiritual, but not religious, I always say to them, how much do you give to charity? I want to know what you do to express that thing that is spiritual in you. Because if all you do is say I'm spiritual, but not religious, it doesn't mean anything. You have to actually do something in the world to show that that's real to you. Do you feel, does that statement annoy you probably? Only when it's said, as it often is, you should excuse me, (laughs) vacuously. Mm -hmm. Like it doesn't mean anything. It's just spiritual is a nice thing to call yourself. When someone is genuinely, like genuinely spends time thinking, devoted to it, then it doesn't. Normie, although I think that it's often based on a misunderstanding of what religion is. Well, that's why I wanted to have you here, because I so agree with you. I feel like they're actually very one in the same. We each just put different parameters, even within religions, different religions. And I mean, I think you and I had this conversation once a long time ago where I said, I I joke, exactly what you were just saying. I say, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. I'm like, but it's bullshit within my own spirituality. It's become a religion. For me, it's like the way the things I think I practice are very much, excuse me, <clears throat> sorry, are very much a religion. So and in there, a way. The one other part of religion, though, that Judaism in particular is very devoted to is the existence of community. So love, it's yes. not it's not a solitary practice. It's a communal practice. And that also, I think, is important in our world where people have a hard time sometimes finding community and being part of community. It's true. And the same thing here, too. It's why I created the Den. So people, I mean, if they want to be more solitary, they can, but the community is there and able because I do think there's also an energy. It's the same thing meditating yes. alone or meditating in a group. There's a better energy you get when you meditate in a group. You just right. pick it, you're just elevating each other. Right. Do you feel that, too? Like Yes. And also you have to, I mean, in the friction of living with other human beings, you have to explore parts of yourself that you don't if you live alone. You just do. And so it's growth. Says a man who's now single. <laughs> exactly. That's true. Well, that's absolutely true. When I was married, uh, or or even when my daughter comes and stays with me, it is a different experience. You have to accommodate to someone else, and then you have to explore yourself and be reflected in someone else's, I've learned an awful lot from my daughter about myself, because she will reflect back to me that I do this and I don't do that. What was the most surprising thing you learned about yourself from your, through your daughter? Hmm. Um, I think that the most, well, I'll tell you one, one cute thing that she said to me, which I didn't, I never would have put it this way, but she did. She came out once with two blouses and she said, dad, which one looks better with these pants? And I pointed to the one on the left and I said, that one does. And she goes, you know, dad, you have a little girl in you as well. And I'm saying that as a compliment. (laughs) I I grew up with three brothers. right? And I realized somewhere my mother was smiling because she always tried to get us to care about what we wore. That's so funny. Yes, it was very funny. So I think that that was like, I just took it as natural that I would have an opinion. And she said, you know, like her boyfriend would would say, I don't know, they're just two pieces of fabric. I don't Or I feel like a lot of guys would be like, I'm not answering that. (laughs) Don't even get me to go there. Um, So within this like rigidity, talking about some people look at things rigid we're talking about practice that no matter what it is religion or something it needs a practice where does the individuality fall so where can people be their own thinkers and their own intellects and their own emotions within the rigidity or the framework of judaism or any religion so i think any any religion is is a universe unto itself 
And there are endless variations of the ways people practice Judaism, understand Judaism, write about Judaism. Um, I don't think that there is any system that is a world system that doesn't allow, at least certainly not in the West. And Judaism begins with the statement that every human being is created in the image of God, which means every person has infinite value. And therefore, you contain within yourself some kind of eternity. So yes, you could spend your entire life exploring yourself um, and never come to the end of it, which is a beautiful thing. Yeah. Um, that's, but that's one of the reasons also that you need someone else as a mirror because you will see a reflection of yourself in their eyes that is different from what you just see from internal exploration. And all of that together, interaction and introspection, create a different path for every human being who has their own journey. You know, I heard this great line the other day. I actually used it in a sermon from Lily Tomlin. She said, when I grew up, I always wanted to be somebody. And when I got older, I realized I should have been more specific. <laughs> and I realized like part of it is what it is you think you want to be. That also makes you different because nobody's aspiration is entirely the same as everybody else's. But what's beautiful is you're saying you can still live within this these parameters, these practices. And again, it goes back to I'm spiritual, I'm not religious. Exactly. It can all be the same thing. You are you are special and well, you are unique, but you're but so is everybody else, which is the strange paradox. You know, there are, I really deeply believe there are no ordinary people. I know that a lot of people think people are ordinary. If you think someone's ordinary, you don't know them well enough. I, com I completely agree with you. I feel like everybody has something. Yeah. Good, bad. I mean, even yes. in the, well, here, I mean, you you have a congregation. It's probably mm -hmm. one of the most gossipy places. There's a little bit of gossip. I mean, yeah, right? I mean, I, they're Jews. It's yeah, like exactly what we do. Right. And um, I say- You and I never gossiped. No. Never, I, we never. don't gossip. Never, of course not. But yeah. um, it, it's, you know, you laugh when right. there's all this gossiping happening. And you almost want to turn to everyone and be like, okay, what's your story? Because, yes. you know, no one's clear of no. any of it. Exactly. So I, how is that for you, actually? If you're leading a congregation, you are in charge, you are the leader. What happens when gossip turns towards you? So this, which has happened, this is a really actually important issue for anybody who's in a position as you are, as I am, who's called a quote unquote spiritual leader is that that's an invitation for your ego to run riot. And, uh, and the best way I know of, I think for that not to happen is for you to have people close to you who don't see you as a spiritual leader because you will have to ignore a lot of what people say about you and realize that that's their projection onto you, good and bad. So it's a challenge sometimes because you have to remember that you are no more special than anybody else. I mean, that is, I feel like the God complex runs rampant in all of these. Yes. And so you're saying surround yourself with people who look at you differently to keep yourself in check. Exactly. Have you found moments where you were falling prey to it? I found moments where I started to take things for granted that I shouldn't take for granted. Absolutely. Like right. what? Like um, people doing things for me because my congregants will often do things for me. And then I realized this is actually, this is not normal. Most people don't function this way or live this way. And there's no reason why I should expect this. It's a really wonderful thing that they want to do that. But you should know it's special every yes, time. Yes, exactly. So what happens, though? Because do you feel like you lose perspective in the world? I mean, you were surrounded by 
more death, more birth, more marriages, more love, more fights. You get all of it all the time. I mean, that's right. who you are. You end up like, I'm sure coaching people constantly and you see it. Do you, does it make you lose the, any perspective? The within? thing that restores perspective, honestly, the best restorer perspective are funerals. Because you remember that that is the inevitable end of every person and nobody escapes it. And, and when I first came to the mm. synagogue, I did funerals for strangers, but I've been there now 21 years and now I'm doing funerals for friends. So it's a very sobering process. And having gone through oh, wow. cancer myself and through brain surgery separate from the cancer. Um, Twice, right? Yeah. I know that, you know, it's you're really, you're a moment away. There are no guarantees. So when you, and your wife too, correct? Am I remembering this correctly? She did too. My right. ex-wife, yes. You guys, sorry, ex-wife. My, you guys, it was quite a... Yes, we had a succession of uh, illnesses, right. And as a rabbi and what you study and what you do, did it change your perspective on how you do your job and yes. how you look, you perceive your religion? Yes. Uh, first of all, it changed me because when I walk into the hospital, I know what it is to lie in a hospital bed. I never really understood, you know? Um, and now I do. And I, I know that experience from the inside. And, and it also, I mean, I think, that, I think that just getting older should do this to you, although it doesn't always. <laughs> it made me less impatient of the people who make me impatient because... What you said before, you learn how everybody has this stuff and nobody escapes without it. And if you don't see someone's wounds, it's only because they're hidden or they're secrets, not because they don't exist. There are no unwounded people. Right. So just like there are no, uh, there's someone, a friend of mine told me that his mother told him when he was young, the only happy families I know are families I don't know very well. Right. <laughs> you know, Which I always thought was a great, it's, and so the more you realize the essential brokenness of people and the world, I think the less harshly judgmental you grow towards others and also towards yourself. And so when you were going, and again, you battled this twice, was there a moment you thought you weren't going to make it? Um, well, when I woke up from my brain surgery, he told me there was an 80, 75 or 85% chance that it was malignant. And then, Oof. and I thought, if that's true, I know what a malignant brain tumor is. Turned out not to be. For a long time, for several years, my favorite word in the English language was benign. Right, I'm sure. <laughs> I loved that word. Was everything benign? <laughs> yeah. um, but, I mean, I, I always, I, I've told my congregation that I, you know, I'm in remission. The only, and so are they. The only difference is I know it. Um, but we I all love, are. No, but I love that. It's true. We're all in remission. It's yep. just the difference is you yes, know it. Yes, we all have a fatal disease. We all have a gun to our head. We just don't know when it's going to go off. Um and therefore, you have to, you know, to, and there, I, that's why I love that line from Mary Oliver, the poet. She said, tell me, what do, you, what do you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? And it is only one. Yeah. Do you feel when you, um, for that time period from when he said you have an 85% chance yeah. that it's malignant yeah. to what was it, like two days later you got yeah. the test results? Yep. What were those two days for you? Um, they were... Try, this sounds strange, trying not to think of my daughter's future. Because what you discover when you have a child, as I'm sure you've discovered, is, it is it's your chance in the world to be selfless. I didn't care that I was going to die, which surprised me 
I cared that she wouldn't have a father. And that killed me. I couldn't stand that thought. Do you, I know, it's a yeah. heartbreaking thought. Do you feel like part of your okayness of dying is also part of your faith? It's part of my faith. And it's, it was also part of the reality. I always tell people um, that all the time people come into my office and they say things like, this happened, why me? But people never come into my office and say, I was born to the richest country in the world. I've never gone hungry. Why me? <laughs> you know? But that's a good question, too. Right. And I thought, if I think of my life, I had parents who loved me. I have brothers who love me. I grew up in a, in a, in a peaceful time. I never went to war. Um, I have a beautiful child. I've had a very wonderful life. So if it ends now, really, do I have cause for a complaint? I want more. But have I been badly treated? No, I haven't been badly treated. So it's funny. I've had that exact, obviously mine's more pathetic because mine was not off of a brain tumor, but it was, and I'm not a hypochondriac, but it was the one time in my life I actually thought I was dying. And I remember going to take a shower and being like, okay, if I don't come out in 10 minutes, I just really thought I was dying. It's a long yeah. story, but I had the exact same conversation. I remember being slightly panicky yes. and then saying, okay, if this is really what's happening, think about it. It's not what I expected. I thought I had a lot longer. There's so much more I want to do and experience. Yes. But if this is it, it's been pretty fucking great. Yes, like I've been really exactly how I feel. Right, I was like, I've been really lucky. Yeah. I, same thing. I had a good childhood. Like overall, I have nothing yeah. to complain about, and I've done a lot. Except for your daughter. I didn't have my daughter at the time, right. okay. so I didn't but, even but, have that. But that you would have that exact same Absolutely. feeling, and now, you would feel exactly the same way. Which is, as long as I am there long enough for her to be okay, then I'm really okay. You right. Know? But as it's so interesting that you had that ability. Do you? I mean. Probably not, but do you believe in reincarnation? Is there any? So I'm not. I, I'm not a big fan of reincarnation. This is a longer discussion. I actually we have time. met when I was in <laughs> India with Sadhguru. Um, he was at the synagogue once, and we had a and and that's where I went to see him in India, and we had a debate about reincarnation. Here's my problem with reincarnation. I don't have a problem with the soul living on after death. Mm -hmm. um, I really think human beings are eternal. In what way we live on, I have no idea. I couldn't possibly imagine this world before I came into it. So what makes me think I can imagine the next one? The problem with reincarnation is that it makes the world fair. They say, why were you reincarnated as David Wolpe in, in the United States? Because in a past life, you did something good. So you got to be in, in, a, in a good time, in a good country. Right. But this child who was born in a relocation camp in the Sudan and is going to get amoebic dysentery and die, obviously in a past life, he did something wrong. No, right. it makes the world fair. And I don't think the world is fair. So I don't like any doctrine that threatens to make it fair. That's why I think karma is not true. It, well, it's funny because I believe in reincarnation, but I don't necessarily believe in karma. So it's funny. It's yeah. like a combination because I agree with you. I think that's such a weird thing of like, right. oh, well, they must be like the nicest right. people ever to be able to have all I of know. this. I really feel like it's stuff our souls are learning each time they're coming back and we all have things to learn. And ultimately, we probably live it all. We were, I was just having this conversation this morning. It's like we've probably lived billions of lives and sometimes they're really amazing and sometimes they're really awful wow. and sometimes they're really boring. Well, here's, yeah. And this way, it's like by the end of it and like you have that soul energy, it's like you've learned all facets of what the human experience can be. So, you so can here's learn. the other part. Oh, I'm sorry. No, no, go. Uh, here's the You're other part of this. You're way more interesting than I am, no, trust no, me. No, 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 not at all. Here's the other part of this that's important, which is I don't believe in reincarnation, you do. But I also know 
that my view of the world is incredibly partial and limited. And so to argue as opposed to say, this is why I don't, is just foolish because we know so little. I mean, think about it. Our eyes only see a certain spectrum of light. Our ears only hear certain sound. Our minds clearly only perceive a certain level of reality. So for me to say, no, 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 you're wrong, pal, that would be ridiculous. But this is why you're one of my favorite people because, <laughs> no, it's true because you think I'm right. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No, no, no. I mean, but right. why you are, especially with yeah. a, precon- a job that can have preconceived notions right. um, or a faith or a religion is you are very much like, I know what I don't know. I'm the same way. By the way, I say I believe in religion now, but in two years, three years, I don't know. My my ideas may change what some other notion might actually resonate right. with me more or someone might say something that makes me think differently. So I'm a lot like you. I would yeah. never tell someone there's no way you're wrong. Because I think of things I used to believe that I don't believe now. Exactly. So how do I know that it's not possible for me to change in the future? But I think it's so interesting, especially with like the layer of religion that again, reminding people like there's openness everywhere and there's beauty everywhere. And just because there's people have different beliefs doesn't mean they're right or wrong or alienating to others. Like it can still be a very all-encompassing. And that's why I really do believe in the spirituality, which which is very central to Judaism and the spirituality of learning. I really think that learning and knowing more and studying is a deeply spiritual practice. And the more you... The more you know, the it's not. I when I when I talk to younger people, I just had a that when I was when I was in India, there were all these um, there were all these there fellows from all over the world, and they just graduated college, and I got to spend a couple hours with them, and at the end of it, I said to them, "So maybe you see that you think when you get older that you have the answers, but that's not how it works. What happens is that you see more parts of the puzzle." the questions get deeper and bigger. It's not that you have all the answers to the questions that you wondered before. And that's, I think, what spirituality does for you if it's real, is it makes things deeper and wider and broader. It's not like the snapping closed of a lock or the multi-answer you know, ch- or the multi uh, answer test where you know the answers. It's that your perspective on the world is infinitely broader because you've seen much more. I think that's so beautiful and profound. And I think it is, it's like spirituality is like the faith in being okay with what you don't know mm-hmm. instead of fighting right. what you don't know yes. or, or just right. resting on only what you know, whatever Which it is. Which is a constant temptation. Yeah. Well, it's easy. Right. Right, right. And there's such a fear around the unknown yes. in so many ways. I mean, that's, that's so perfectly said. So speaking of, I know you love to learn. I mean, you're I an avid, I mean, how I many do. books do you read? I mean, you read so much. It's insane. And you I retain, you're one of those people, you retain everything. Um, what, here's a question. If you had to mm-hmm. choose another religion, like that's just someone came in. It was just, we're right. playing a game because I know right. you'd be like, so I just what I, would say, what I would say is that I don't know other religions from the inside. So I'm reluctant to choose because I don't know. I only know abstract doctrines of them. I don't know what it's like to, to I don't know what it's like to live as a Buddhist or as a Christian or as a Muslim. So I, I wouldn't. But if you were for forced, like on paper, they're like, yeah, but you have to, like right now, pick one. Um, I think that I would probably pick one that was very removed from my own so that I could retain as many of my own beliefs as possible. So I would pick like, you know, 
um, Jainism or <laughs> Tibetan Buddhism. You're coming whatever, to my LA again. And try to and try to sneak as many Jewish beliefs in there as as I could because it's it's almost it's it's a very difficult intellectual exercise for me to do. Yeah, to, uh, to pick. What right? re- are there any what religions? Because you study yeah. so much, do you study that you're actually surprised at either the similarities or commonalities? Or let's well, take even Islam, for instance. Islam and Judaism spoken. have a lot in common. Right. Because they're both religions of law. And the reason they are is that unlike Christianity, which grew up during the Roman Empire, so law was already set by the Roman Empire, Islam and Judaism grew up in the desert. So they had to create religions of law because they needed to tie people together. Um, but again, I, I think that the, the, the best religion, honestly, is an is an ancient religion that is positively impacted by the modern world. And the problems that religions have today generally are the ones who fight some of the best trends in modernity, like egalitarianism and diversity and so on. The ones that push back against that are the ones that the world needs to, the, the movements in religions that push back against that are the ones that the world needs to worry about. So what's the conversation like when you go and you meet with all these amazing religious leaders yep. of different religions? What is it like? Is it automatic kinship because there's similarities? Is so, it competitive? Like No, what, it's like, not competitive. <laughs> it's not competitive because really we're we're asking and listening to each other. So I'll give you an example. I had a meeting in June with the Dalai Lama. And he turned to me in the middle of the meeting. And he points at me and he says, so what's this about the chosen people anyway? (laughs) So I said, and I was in Tibet to speak to a group of monks about how Jews have survived in exile, because now they're all in exile. So I said, yes, the Jews have always believed that we have a special mission in the world, but we've not believed that no one else has a special mission. Other people have missions as well. And he laughed and he said, yeah, well, Tibetans think they're chosen too. Right. And so that was a great moment. Because it's so <laughs> it much commonality. Yes, exactly so. And also because he was perfectly willing to admit it and he laughed about it. So I think <laughs> especially when the religion has not had a history of contention, like Judaism and Christianity, Islam and Judaism and Christianity, they've all had a lot of contention between them. But when I go and talk to Buddhist monks There is no friction because there's not like a history that somebody has to live up or live down. Um, Nobody has to feel guilty and nobody has to feel victim. We're just interested in each other's traditions and what we have to learn from them. With Christianity and Islam, you have to get past that or past whatever the political situation is before you can actually have the dialogue. And that happens too, but it takes more time. How and how... How does that happen? Like, is it practical? Do you talk about the political stuff mm-hmm. and then move on? Or is it sometimes just getting used yes, to each or other? Sometimes you deliberately choose to ignore it and talk about other things. Like, we're going to talk about our prayer practice or something like that. And out of all of these meetings, you don't have to be name names. Are there ever people that surprise you that might live such a different life that you're like, oh, in a different circumstance, we would be really good friends? Oh, absolutely. I met a couple of monks. I met a monk in Myanmar who I really, it was clear to me that we were sort of kindred spirits. Maybe a past life. What? Exactly. There you go. I'm just <laughs> going to make you a believer. I'm just kidding. Um, but you were kindred but, spirits. But our world is so different. So different. And have you talked to him? Like, I mean, because no, it's, yeah. I don't even I mean, know if there's a mechanism to I was going to say, like, he how lives, do you even... He lives basically on an, on an island off, uh, you know, um, Bagan. And, and he has a small monastery there. And 
And that's pretty much it. Isn't it amazing how in the world, I mean, now we have so much technology and so much stuff, but if you remove that, it doesn't matter. There's just certain people in this world that you can meet once, have one conversation with, or maybe it's just a week or, and they'll just always have such an impact on you. Absolutely. Um, Buber talks about that when he talks about an I-thou relationship. He says that, you know, it can happen with a stranger on a bus. And you just, for a moment, part of the magic of it is you don't want anything from them and they don't want anything from you except yourself. And so you have that moment of encounter and then you may never see them again, but that's an authentic meeting. But that was weirdly kind of like us. It was like strangers yes. on a plane. It was on a plane. I mean, exactly. We, I, I just told I just told someone today, actually, before I came here, that you're the only person in my life that I ever met and became friends with from a plane ride. You're like one of the only people I actually talked to on a plane. Remember <laughs> exactly. I told you, I'm like, I hate talking well, on the plane. Because you were reading a book that I'd read. Right. Yeah. You were reading the book and talking to someone before takeoff uh, behind someone. You guys were starting to talk about right. it because it was a very okay. popular book at the time. And I couldn't read it yet because uh, I work was really busy. And I just said, hey, guys, right. just don't talk about right, it too right, loudly. Right. I can't read it for like another <laughs> month. And you turned, I think you right. turned around and said, what do you do that you can't right. read a right, book? Right, right, Which right, now right. that I know you, you're probably <laughs> exactly. very judgmental with that. <laughs> I didn't know that then, but you're probably like, really? Yeah, 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 exactly. Like, read the book. <laughs> and then we talked the right. whole plane ride. Right. Well, we discovered we knew lots of people in common. I mean, it was crazy. But this is funny. Like, from my perspective, this is actually a really funny story. I got on this plane leaving New York to come back to L.A. It was through work. Um, and so I was in business class because they were flying me. And I got on early because I like to hover and like not right. talk to anyone. And I'm I'm holed up with the script, I think. And you came and you sat next to me. And I always, you know, you always like scope out who am I stuck next right, to for right, the next right, six right. hours? Like, what is this? But, and I stop. And then all of a sudden, every single person who walks on the plane is like, hi, Rabbi. Hi, Rabbi. <laughs> hi, Rabbi. Hello, Rabbi. And I'm like, why does every single person on this plane know? I mean, everyone. And I'm like, this is so bizarre. Like, first I'm like, oh, I'm sitting next to a rabbi. Like, mm-hmm. and why do they all know him? Right. And then when we started talking and you told me it was a mutual person we knew's wedding that you flew yes, into exactly, too. So all these rabbi. people were going back to Los Angeles. But it was crazy. Like, we didn't know each other all. We spoke for five hours. Yeah. And I mean, and then stayed very good friends. Yes. So it's true. You never know when you're going to meet. Oh, you're a podcast host. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew? Right. Well, I was interviewing there. Remember you said yeah. that to me? You're like, you're like interviewing me. I'm like, well, you're so interesting. <laughs> and you are because there's so many facets of you. It's like I could keep talking to you forever. And you, know, you say that I retain stuff, but your personal memory is astonishing. Really? Yes. But you're interesting. Of course I'm going to remember. Uh, no, it doesn't, it doesn't work like that. I mean, really. But I, I know because I remember like we were talking about your dad and your brother's a rabbi too, right? My younger brother. Right. So because I remember we were talking. That's pretty amazing. Well, I mean, I'm telling you, it was an interesting conversation. But I always was, I think, when we talked a lot about the cancer and the surgeries, mm-hmm. that was always really moving to me. Because, again, like, we we just spoke about potential God complex, but there's also the opposite. People yes. can look at whoever the leader of a community is as God as well. And so to see all of a sudden when they're either fallible or potential of being sick, I think that could probably really rock a universe. Did There's you no feel- question that it did. A lot of people could, almost couldn't process the idea that I had gotten sick. Really? As though somehow it should confer immunity from illness. Um, and so I made, a, I made it a point when I was going through chemo and I was bald to come before the congregation and speak so that they would see. And so that other people who, after all, because other people were going to go through it, so that they would feel less stigmatized by it. Did you feel like there was a stigma to it? Yeah, I think for some people it was really uncomfortable. And cancer has, 
you know, unless I think less and less so over time, but still it's scary. People don't want to say the word. They don't want to, you know, so they don't want to confront it. So I wanted them to confront it. And so here you are someone who you got sick and that scared some people. And then when you went through a divorce, yes. because especially also, in Judaism, I'm sure many religions, right. it's the couple is yeah. becomes the premier couple. It's very hard for people. Absolutely. And in fact, um, Eileen, that's my ex-wife, and I discussed for a long time, do we want to do this because it's going to be so hard for the community? I think we probably would I mean, have gotten divorced a long time I mean, time the before. responsibility, that's yes. crazy. It's bad enough when people yes. don't know how, what to do with but their children. Fortunately, yes. Fortunately, we, re <laughs> we retain a close friendship, and that was never an issue. So that also, I think, makes it somewhat easier for people they know. Now you guys have a respect yes, for each exactly, other and a love exactly. for each other. Yeah. But even then, let's say you didn't. Let's say it was weirdly ugly, which it right. wasn't, I'm prof is saying. It almost feels unfair that you can't have an ugly yeah, divorce or an ugly relationship. It's true. It's true. But you're not allowed to get the advantages without the disadvantages. And there are advantages to being a spiritual leader. So you also have the disadvantages, just like anything else. Do you, I mean, that's very beautifully said and very um, aware. But do you feel like sometimes you don't get to live your own life? I spend a lot of time living other people's lives. And again, advantages and disadvantages, you know? I mean, you you walk into a wedding and you're the person that counts because you're gonna be doing the wedding. You walk into a funeral and maybe you don't know this person, but you're the one who actually has to stand up and summarize their life. So there are two ways to see that. One is right. it's a lot of responsibility that you live other people's lives. But the other is that it's an incredible honor that at crucial moments in people's lives, they're looking to you to help make it meaningful. So if that's something that you like to do, or you feel good doing, it's tremendous. How do you take care of yourself? Um, I read, I go to the gym. I go to the gym and I read. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes I watch things on Netflix. Are there ever um, moments you're just depleted? No, I, I, the greatest blessing that my, um, my parents, but I think primarily my father gave me, was I have a fairly even disposition. So I can get upset, but it never lasts too long. Um, and and I'm, I'm basically happy and I feel basically grateful. And I think that's partly a religious training, but it's also just partly honestly encoded in my DNA. I do think sometimes things are just yeah. encoded. So let's speak about happiness for a second. Okay. I mean, you're a leader of a community. I'm sure, do a lot of people come to you with that? Like, I'm you're just unhappy. not happy. Yes. Like, what is your... The primary, okay, here's my, my cure-all for unhappiness. Oh, I love, okay, everybody pay attention here's, right now. And should we patent this? <laughs> it, it will not surprise you. The best thing you can do for being unhappy is do something for someone else. A soup kitchen, somebody who's working at a soup kitchen is rarely unhappy. It's amazing how much it takes you out of yourself to, to help somebody who's less fortunate than you. It's just amazing. The problem is, you know, you have to get up and do it, which is a pain in the neck and nobody wants to do it. But the actual doing, and the reason I say that is because I see it over and over again in my life. Again, to invoke my daughter again, I will be there on a Saturday night and I can't believe that I have to get up and put on a tuxedo and go to Hotel X or Y and do a wedding. And I'll say that to her and she'll say to me, you know that you're going to come back and say, I had so, it was so wonderful. I so, she said, as soon as you get there, you're going to feel great. And she's always right. I am a big advocate of the do, of the emotion follows the doing, as opposed to the doing dictates the emotion. But you have to do. But you have to do. You know, we, again, also a few months, a month back, we had this woman, Lorea Gaston on this mm -hmm. podcast episode was amazing. And she feeds 
over 10,000 homeless a month with organic food that she cooks out of her kitchen. I mean, she's an incredible woman. But one of the things she talks about, which has resonated with me since, like it's crazy how it's like totally changed my life. And it's exactly what you were saying. She calls them micro gestures. Cause she says, look, if you give, you only get back tenfold. But she's like, but you can also start it in such small ways. Every day you can do at least one micro gesture, if not a million. It can be as simple as like, give someone that smile. Or you can go the extra mile if like, if you need a feed, like ask someone, are you hungry? Do you need food? Like if you can't bring yourself to the soup kitchen, there's a million people on the street, just ask them. I've texted her and been like, I've never fed so many homeless people. Like, like since I've not, like I, it's amazing the difference. And I actually used to go out of my way to do that. But since talking to her, it's, it's been exponential, it's exponentially increased because- yes, amazing what it does for your soul. It does so much for your soul, but also it's really easy. So I like the idea of like what you're saying and you're right. saying you need the action, Yes. but her putting it in a micro gesture sometimes might be more digestible for people. It doesn't even so have too. to be yeah. so huge. You can go and give in small ways every day. So I love like you both are yes. saying the exact same thing and that, so you, there we go. We figured it out guys. Exactly. That's how you become happy, <laughs> which is amazing. So speaking of happiness, let's go the opposite. What for you? is your struggle. Like, what's your Achilles heel? What do you feel like, no matter, even though you could give someone else this advice in your congregation all the time or in the world, what do you feel like is your Achilles heel, even with this even disposition of yours? Um, it depends what you, well, there are two different kinds. Like, there are things that I have an easy annoyance trigger. Um, in fact, I will tell you a story that I hope is okay to tell. Um, Everything is. So, <laughs> exactly. It's just, it's just, <laughs> yeah, like it's just us. us, right? Exactly. Um, so, <laughs> Years ago, when I first hired my wondrous assistant, Rebecca, when I hired her, I said, listen, I want you to know, this is what it's like to work for me. I will never, ever yell at you because I know me. I just don't do that. I said, but occasionally I'll get annoyed. When I get annoyed, just ignore me. Five minutes later, I'll be fine. Okay. A few years ago, I was telling my daughter. And I don't remember how it came up. I said, I said this to Rebecca. When I, t- when I finished that, my daughter said, go back and apologize to her. I said, what? She said, when you get annoyed, it isn't possible to ignore you, especially not if she works for you. So go back and apologize to her. So I went back and I apologized to Rebecca. And Rebecca laughed and she said, I love your daughter. Should I and have your I daughter knew. on the podcast? <laughs> <laughs> you should. I feel She'd like I should be the next and I realized, I realized that what I think is nothing oh, I just got annoyed, is not nothing. It affects people. Exactly. And so what we tend to do is we dismiss our own stuff as that's not really, because I don't rage and scream. So I'm a really good guy. I only get get annoyed. Exactly. I only get annoyed. I don't curse. Um, Apparently I do. But it's not. (laughs) No, I meant at someone. I do, just not at someone. Um, but, But that's, you have to be aware that what you do is what you do. You know, in the same way that someone says, well, I would never drink. No, they rage instead. I mean, everybody has something that's there. Some things are so, not multiple things. Exactly. So that's your trick. That's your That struggle, is certainly so. one of them. Are you now more aware of it? Yes, I am more aware of it. That doesn't mean I'm necessarily better at it. And as one of my, one of my teachers once said, I mean, I have other things too that I could, I mean, I could name others. Um, name as many as you want. <laughs> um, I will sometimes, I have the opposite problem from you. And it's not, yours isn't a problem. I have the opposite quality, which is I can talk to somebody very seriously about their life, see them a week later and not remember. But you also probably, the volume. It's true, but still, a lot of other people do remember. And when you don't remember, 
people get hurt. I know it's so hard, but it is, everyone has different skills. I say the same thing. Yes. I might remember every single yeah. detail about your life, but probably yeah. not your name. Right. And that really upsets people too. And I always try and be like, but I know yeah, what's right, right. going exactly. on with you, but it's, so, we but, all have but different. But you said, what do I struggle with? So that's another one that I struggle with. And, and so, you know, it's, uh, everybody Do you have tricks for that or no? You just kind of accept it. I don't accept it, but I don't, <laughs> but I don't fix it either. I guess that's a third one. There you go. So maybe we should work on that. <laughs> <laughs> fixing right, my yes. issues is like that's my right. other struggle. That's your new podcast, Fixing, fixing my, my issues. Fixing my issues. It should be the name of our thing. Yeah. What about like, you know, we were talking about God complex mm-hmm. on both sides and, you know, I think it, that runs through, I mean, the Bible and through yes. stories and heroes yes. and heroism. And yeah. do you feel like religion needs those stories? Do you think people need heroes in order to instill the inspiration to be a certain way? Or do you think it needs to be more inwards? Or is it a combination? I think people always need role models to spur them on. I think that it is dangerous to see anyone as more than human. We've seen that over and over. And over. Yeah. I think hero, I think a realistic view of heroes is a good thing. I think my father was a wonderful man. He had flaws. So I don't see him as a God. I don't see him as a perfect person, but he certainly was inspiring in a lot of ways. Do you believe in miracles? Like the miracles in the Bible and stuff, are those things you believe? Or do you think there are story points for exactly what you're saying in order I to create community? I, I don't believe in supernatural miracles. I believe in natural miracles. Yeah, I think there are miraculous things that happen in the world all the time, but I don't think that God reaches down and takes out your tumor. Right. Yeah. And your last book was about heroes and heroism. Yes, correct? I wrote about King David, who was deeply flawed, deeply, deeply flawed in lots of ways but was an astonishing, remarkable man. So I, I think that we have a ways to go yet to see people as people um, and understand their flaws uh, and still give them credit for what is. Now, obviously there are limits to this. You know, there are monstrous things that people do that have to be condemned as monstrous. But it's also true, I think, that we tend, especially when people are in public places, um, we tend both to see them as greater than they are and also to take an unbelievable amount of glee at their downfall. I know that's, I find that more, I find that happens more often than not. Like people, even if they don't admit it, they're like secretly pleased. pleased. Right. And I just want, and I think that that's probably a natural human reaction. I just want people to be aware of it and not think that it's, think that it's good. You know? And do you think there's the same inward issue? Like, I think not everyone's great at looking at their own flaws either, right. accepting that yes. you are, fl- like, we're right. all flawed. Yep. And I feel like that people really struggle with being happy for that reason too, yep. because they're never truly being honest with themselves. They're not being honest with themselves or, or they're, I think the, the problem is a balanced view. Other people are so hard on themselves that they can't be happy, you know? And they do the same thing that, other people do, but they beat themselves up endlessly for it, right. which is Instead of just an acceptance of a whole, that Accepting we're all going to have flaws and we're going to exactly. all, right. And, That's right. and no human is. Yes. And being self-forgiving is sometimes very powerful and important if you're going to be, if you're going to be healthy for other people too, and to model that for other people. How do you, yeah, I mean, self-forgiveness is really difficult because how do you know when you're actually really forgiving yourself? <laughs> Um, I think it, it depends. Is it still waking you up at night and you're still running over and over and over again, which you should have done and you haven't forgiven yourself? Well, there you, you know? go. That's and, how you know. And, and with other people, here's the key to whether you know you've forgiven other people. Do you still feel like you have the moral high ground? 
because when someone does something wrong to you, you're better than them. And you haven't really forgiven them as long as you still feel better. You only forgive them when you really wipe it out and you're on the same level again. So that's, that's my test for forgiveness. That doesn't mean, by the way, you have to let them into your life. You may not want to. Right. But if you still walk around with a sort of smug feeling of, I, for- I have forgiven them because I'm me, then that's not real forgiveness. Right. It's almost like sometimes, it's funny because I, I, get, I get that because whenever I have like an issue with someone, like a mm-hmm. big one where it actually takes like yeah. forgiveness, I forget about it eventually. Like, it's almost like a joke later. I have to right. remind myself with that person. So, then, so that's how I know, like, right. oh, we've moved on completely. And then, but then you're lucky because some people can't do that. Some people. But it might take me a while can. to get there. Yeah. But like, uh, eventually I can. There's not, yeah, there isn't a, an egg timer on forgiveness. Egg there's time. not. Yeah. Can we go buy one? <laughs> Just so yeah. we know that. Right. What, if you look at your life now, what are you most surprised by? Like from when you were a child and you look now, what are you like? Apart from being a rabbi and living so it actually in Cal- surprises you. Yes, very much. And being in California, when I always, you know, and uh, yeah, I mean, I think both of those things are surprising. Um, what doesn't surprise you? Doesn't surprise me that I've written books I always wanted to write. Um, it delights me. I didn't know if I ever would, but it doesn't surprise me. Uh, and yes, um, it doesn't surprise me. This may sound sort of inverted, it doesn't surprise me that I look back on my childhood with gratitude. Even when I was a kid, I knew that like, I came from a good place. I felt it even as a child, which I'm, which- Not not everyone feels that. The more I know people, the more I know how rare that is actually. It's rarer than people think. Um, And I think if you said to me, what is the thing that I'm most grateful for? It is that my daughter would say the same thing, has said the same thing many times to both of us. So, I really feel very, very glad about that. I'm very grateful to my parents. You've done so much. I mean, you've spoken to leaders around the world. You've spoken on TV shows. You've just, you've just accomplished so much. Like you said, you've written eight books. What is the thing you are most proud of? Personal life aside, because, I mean, the father thing is clear, clearly okay. is more important. So your to daughter me than any, won. Yes, absolutely. More important to me than anything else. Personal um, life aside. I think. What I am, I'm probably, what I'm most proud of is the things that are, that didn't come naturally to me. The speaking and the writing and the teaching, I all love it and I'm proud of it, but it also came naturally to me. The thing that didn't come naturally to me is going into a hospital room, um, is comforting somebody who's in mourning. Those things, I was always a little bit of an isolated character. When we, when I was a kid, when I was 10 years old, we moved to Philadelphia. And there were three, there were three floors to the house. And I was the only one to my astonishment who wanted to live alone on the third floor. My brothers always want, all wanted to live on the second floor, like close to each other. And that's very characteristic of me. I've always a been a little loner. social isolation. I mean, nobody can read as much as I have, who hasn't spent a lot of time alone. Right. <laughs> so the idea that I'm actually responsible for a community and have to come out of my shell to do those things that's not me by nature, and so I'm proud of that. You should be proud of that. So one big question before we do your four years, because yes. touch, you touched on it so briefly in the beginning, and I meant to go back, but what would your argument be in defense of religion when people say it is the root of all evil, it's the root of all conflict, it's the reason for right. all wars? It's, that's, first of all, historically, that's completely untrue. Most wars, even if you look in the Encyclopedia of War, a tiny percentage of wars are because of religion. And it's very rare that people will say, there's somebody at the other side of the world 
who doesn't believe what we do, let's go get them. What almost always happens is it's a, it's a war over land or resources or power. And religion is one element in making people different, just like all the other elements that make people different. Religion does, however, contain the only principle for bringing people together, which is that all people are related to one another, not genetically, because what does genetics mean? But spiritually, because we're all the children of one parent, whatever God is, if you want to think of God parentally or in another way. Um, so I think that religion gets a very bad rap, and it's very easy to say that. And the other thing I would say is people have no idea how much good religion does. The largest aid organization in the United States is this evangelical thing called World Vision out of Seattle. Nobody knows about it. They all know Doctors Without Borders, which is a does a fraction of the good that World Vision does. But, and when I went down to Haiti, I was helping a friend of mine build a, an orphanage down there. Everybody I ran into was a Christian aid worker. They've been there five, 10, 20 years. Nobody covers that, nobody talks about it, and they're doing it because they think that's what God wants them to do. So we tend to overemphasize the bad things that religion does and to just ignore the goodness. I'll tell you one final quick story. Tell me as many stories <clears throat> as you want. There's a, there's a woman who grew up in my congregation named uh, Janet Kaminer Resnick, Janice Kaminer Resnick. And she, uh, with uh, a rabbi who's passed away, created something called Jewish World Watch with Rabbi Harold Joyce. And she told a story once at my synagogue on uh, Yom Kippur that she went to um, this, she was in, I think the Congo and she went to this camp where they set up medical tents for women who had been horribly, horribly abused, like unspeakably abused. And she was, uh, she was helping this woman and the woman looked at her and she obviously didn't look like anybody else there. And she said, why are you here? And she knew she couldn't tell her I'm here because I'm Jewish because Jewish means nothing to that. They don't know what Jew is. And and what she said was, I'm here because I'm a member of an ancient tribe. And my tribe believes that every person is an image of God. And that's why I'm here. Mm, that makes me tear. Now, there are a lot of people who do that, but people disregard it. But I think that they shouldn't. Look, I believe everybody is, we're all one, two, and we're all connected. I mean, I think it's all, it's, yeah. that's, again, this is why I wanted you on here. There is so much commonality in just love and belief and wanting to do good. It just comes in different structures sometimes, but there's so much beauty. All right, your four U's. Okay. Quick answers. Sure. Um, your favorite book or books. I know this is going to be interesting for uh, you. I won't, I don't know. I'll take out favorite and say the book that everybody should read that I have read is Man's Search for Meaning. I meant, I wanted to talk to you about it. Victor Frank. I read it because of you. Yes. I mean, it's incredible. Yes. We talk about it a lot on here. It yeah. comes up all it's, the time. It's a book every human being should read. Where do you feel like you found your meaning? Do you think it's helped you actually? Yes. The perspective? That, I mean, the book that the book that meant the most to me growing up was a book that not everybody will. It's called The Denial of Death by Ernest Becker. But it's it's about the way in which so much of our lives and society and so on is built around our unwillingness to admit that we'll die. That's the essence of the book. And it's beautiful and it's psychoanalytical and it's deep. But But it also, I think, contains a lot of truth. So that too. That's interesting. Yeah. Who's an inspirational teacher for you? So I'm going to say there was a man named Eliezer Slomovic who taught at the uh, AJU when I was there. And he grew up in Eastern Europe. And he, he was not only a, a, just a wonderful, beautiful man, he was an incredibly deep scholar. And he loved 
He loved learning. He loved books. He loved his students. And I'll tell you one, here's one very typical story about him. He also was a little bit confusing because he spoke all these languages and he used to forget like which language he was speaking to us and which one we understood <laughs> and so on. And, but, but one time in the middle of class, he, he starts to talk about something and none of us knew what in the world he was talking about. And he realized that and he stopped and he said, you know, in his very heavy accent, he said, you know, I know a lot more than you. But when you think about how much I don't know and how much you don't know, it ends up being pretty much the same thing. <laughs> and I thought that's, you know, it was an amazing moment. It was like when you think about the enormity of everything we don't know. So anyway, he was he was just a beautiful man. I, but I love that comes from a, a scholar of yeah, religion, exactly. just admitting yes. like we don't have the yeah. answers. This isn't yeah. all the answers. Um, what's the first thing you do when you wake up? I, okay, so... In Jewish tradition, you're supposed to say modet ani, which is a prayer of thanks when you first wake up. But I don't know how I started to do this. I don't say, the first thing I do is I wake up, I walk outside to get the newspaper. And when I step outside, I say modet ani, because that's actually the moment I feel grateful. I don't always feel grateful when I first open my eyes, but when I walk out into the world, I feel an enormous sense of gratitude. So I start the day every day by walking outside and saying modet ani, which is translated, um, I'm grateful to you, O God, sovereign of the universe, who has returned my soul to me. Your faithfulness is great. It's funny because you were saying earlier, like a practice without purpose or feeling it yeah. doesn't matter. So right. I love that you, like for yourself, right. you're like, I feel it here and this that's is what's going to give it purpose. I really do. So. Do you journal or have any other daily practice? Uh, I pray every morning, um, sometimes more, sometimes less. Uh, I often go to the synagogue Prayers, especially these days, because my mother died a little less than a year ago, so I'm still saying the Kaddish prayer so for her. So, um, but that's yeah. But also, I think uh, I think that part for me, part of it is my my life is saturated with this stuff. So I do practice daily, but I also it comes in bits and pieces all through the day because I'm lucky enough that I don't go off to the I don't have my spiritual practice and then go off to the accounting firm. I have my spiritual practice, and then I then I go and I have a meeting with somebody who has a spiritual crisis, and it's all day. It's there. Practicing. It's there again. This has been such an incredible conversation. With one last thing, if you have any life advice, what would it be? I do. So I brought a passage that I want to read to you because I love this passage. It is not Jewish, and it was not written by a Jew. It was written by T. H. White. His personal practice is an excerpt from T. H. White. It's a reading on the spirituality of reading. That is exactly what it is. Um, and this is what he wrote. The best thing for being sad, replied Merlin, beginning to puff and blow, is to learn something. That's the only thing that never fails. You may grow old and trembling in your anatomies. You may lie awake at night listening to the disorder of your veins. You may miss your only love. You may see the world about you devastated by evil lunatics or know your honor trampled in the sewers of baser minds. There's only one thing for it then, to learn. Learn why the world wags and what wags it. That's the only thing which the mind can never exhaust, never alienate, never be tortured by, never fear or distrust, and never dream of regretting. Learning is the only thing for you. Look what a lot of things there are to learn. Talks is produced by Mike Burns, Nicole Rappi, Reem Edon, and music is by Alex Fetter.
If you haven't subscribed, please do. And also wherever you listen, please go and leave us a review. It's so greatly appreciated. It really does help us out. If you want to keep talking about all this stuff, please join our community on our secret Facebook page. Go to Facebook, search Den Talks Podcast and join us there.